All right, hello everybody. Before we get started in the message, I have a great announcement to make. I'd like to let you know that this past Tuesday, the Greeley City Council approved our request for churches to be built in the Promontory site. Yes. We are so excited and we're gonna be moving forward with the plan to purchase that land. So please keep praying. Keep praying for God to continue to lead our church as uh, we move forward into bringing hope to this region. Okay, so uh, most of you know that I'm from Brazil and growing up in Brazil, I was told that it was very important to learn English as a second language. You know, most countries, it's important anyway, anywhere to know a second language. So I thought, okay, in fifth grade, I started studying English and all the way till the end of high school, I studied it for eight years. And then when I was done, when I graduated high school and I was done speaking English, I was, you know, very proud, studying English. I was very proud to be done. I was happy, but also I was honestly ready to not ever speak English again. <laughs> it's like done, check, got my diploma. You know, if it was important to have that on my resume or get a good job, I did it. I got the diploma, diploma on the wall, moving on. However, a few months later, a friend of mine uh, invited me to come translate some American missionaries that were coming to our hometown. He said, well, you know, you study English, so why don't you come and help us out? I thought, sure. I had never really spoken English with a bunch of real Americans before, and it was a complete, it was a different ball game. It was, they spoke fast. They said words that I had never heard before and expressions that I didn't know. I mean, it was crazy. It was a complete different experience. And, you know, mis I made mistakes, a lot of mistakes all the time. I still do, but I made a lot of mistakes. Me and my friends, you know, we offered them a snake instead of a snack or a Band-Aid for their blizzard instead of for their blister. You know, all these words are so confusing and yeah, I made plenty of mistakes. However, after experiencing that, I learned so much. Suddenly, you know, in, when I had to talk to them at first, I had to think of the sentence in Portuguese and then translate word by word to English. And by the time I was ready to speak back to them, the conversation had moved on and I couldn't keep up. But then after a while, I started thinking straight in English. After a while, I started even dreaming in English. And suddenly, all that bunch of knowledge of English started to become real, a real thing in my life. It was something that at first was so unnatural, so unnatural, but it started to become second nature to me. It started to transform the way I thought. It started to become part of who I was. And so today we start this uh, next series called Walk, Turning Faith into Action. We just finished our series core, which covered chapters one through three in the book of Ephesians, and that laid out the foundation of our identity in Christ, who we are in Jesus, what he has done for us. And now, beginning in chapter four, we're still in the book of Ephesians, beginning in chapter four, 
Paul starts a different, a next section of his letter, which is just this, to put it in action. All of this that we learned and that we believe, let's now walk in it. Let's allow it to be part of who we are. Let's allow it to transform our thinking. Um, our experience of our faith is not supposed to be like a diploma on our wall. It's not supposed to be something that we, I got saved, check. It's supposed to be something alive and active in us. And that's my prayer for you and me today, that we can continue to embrace our faith and walk in it. And my English story is extra funny today, 20 years later, because I eventually moved here and now English is 100% of my life. And if I'm gonna write a note to myself, I write it in English. That's what I do when nobody's watching. And that's our hope today, that our faith can be such that we walk in it so much that it becomes the core of who we are and we walk in it. So uh, as I said, core was the first three chapters. And that is very important that we remember the order of this book because our identity comes first. You cannot start this next section of actions, of putting things to practice, if you don't first get the saving grace of God. His grace that was lavished upon us, being marked by the Holy Spirit, and everything else that we learned in these first three chapters. I feel like when I'm, when I'm teaching my four-year-old, what comes before four, it's three and two and one. Don't forget, the letter does not start on chapter four. So as we're talking about actions, always please keep that in mind. Uh, and also remember that it doesn't end on three. It's not about us being saved and the end. There's a whole bunch of things that we're going to start studying now and how our faith and walking in it transforms us. And we want to embrace the fullness and put it all in action, what God has for us. So let's get started. Chapter four, verse one, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This live a life is what's translated to walk in other translations. Now, in order for me to know, for me to walk worthy of this calling that I have received, first I need to know what is this calling? What is my calling? What is calling? There are two kinds of calling that we see in the Bible. One is our individual calling. Each of us, we have a particular calling and a gifting in our lives that God calls us individually. But that one we're gonna see later on in the letter. Today, we're focusing on our general calling, the calling that we're all called by God, which is he called us into his kingdom. He called us from darkness into light. He called us into uh, grace to be like Jesus. He called us to bear fruits. He called us to be Christ-like. That's our general calling over us. And then the word worthy, to walk worthy of it, means suitable, means appropriate. It means of the same weight. When you put it on a scale, it balances 
to equal weight. Now that frightens me a little bit because if I understand the greatness of God's calling in our lives, how am I supposed to walk worthy of it to the same weight as it? It sounds nearly impossible, but I want to tell you what this should not cause in you. You know when you get an invitation to a fancy party, maybe a party for your job, that number one, you already don't, you don't want to be there, you don't like the environment, you're not excited about that invitation to begin with, and then it's like a black tie affair and you don't like to dress up, you just don't want to be there, you don't know what to wear, you're afraid of being um, awkward and not, you know, not match up, and there's all that external pressure and displeasure, you're not at all looking forward to it. This is not it. This invitation for us to live a life worthy of our calling is more like when you're invited to the prom or your wedding day. Oh my gosh, I just, looking back at at my wedding and just thinking of the excitement, the preparation about it, I wanted to dress up. I I wasn't upset to be the entire day in the salon getting ready for it. I wanted to match up because it was a big deal. It was a meaningful day and I wanted to give my best. I wanted to look beautiful. Now, that wasn't because I had to prove anything to anybody. It wasn't because I still was trying to conquer my husband's heart. No, if I had shown up in shorts, we were still going to get married and he already loved me. It's not about proving yourself or conquering anything else. It's because you want to. It's because you understand the greatness of it, the meaning of it, and you want to give your all. You want the full experience, and that's our invitation, to live this life worthy of Jesus' calling. So um, let's move on to the next verses where Paul starts to give us a better idea of, you know, practical ways. What does it look like for us to live worthy of our calling? He presents to us, we're going to see tonight, today, two invitations that Paul uh, extends to us. Let's read verses two and three. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the first invitation that Paul uh, has for us is to walk in patience, humbleness, gentleness, uh, love. And I'm summarizing all of this in, which is our first point, walk others-centered. Let's look at where we'll be unpacking these words. The first word is humility. Humility uh, means to rein in, like steering a horse. You know, we all know, I don't need to tell you that we have a crazy prideful tendency. The world wants to inflate us so we feel uh, greater, bigger than others. And, And humility is you being able to hold that prideful tendency back. 
Now, as we're maybe trying to hold that pride back, we may eventually sometimes go into the other extreme, which is to think of ourselves less than what we are, but that's not humility either. Humility is not self-deprecating. I love that uh, definition of humility that says humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The problem is that we think about ourselves way too much. We are so self-centered. And I say that in love because I'm the first one in line. When I think about my self-centeredness, it actually brings me back to, speaking of wedding, brings me back to when I was first, when I was first married. Because I feel like marriage is a great tool that God uses to expose these kinds of things, our nature, our self-centered nature. Because you were living life on your own, you know, single, making your decisions. And now when you're doing life together, now there are two votes. And two doesn't, it's always tied. And so, so that doesn't go very well. So I remember, you know, these, it's from the great things to the little things. I remember, you know, these things that everybody says, how you push the toothpaste up from the middle or from the bottom or the toilet paper roll from the top or the bottom. My thing was blankets. I loved tucking up until I got married. I tucked the blankets under my feet and my husband tucked the blanket under the mattress. And I love millions of blankets and he doesn't need as many blankets. So everything regarding blankets was a problem right away. And I remember staring at the face of my selfishness and I want it this way, I want it my way. And that was when I clearly realized that I had to divorce my self-obsession. I heard a pastor saying that once, that humility is divorcing your self-obsession. You're obsessed by the way you want to do things, the way you prefer things. And in, in order for me to be united with my husband or united with others, I have to divorce myself. Um, Pride, pride is so uh, destructive. And the same way that pride destroys relationship, humility connects it. And as I've been studying humility, that's the realization that I had. I always thought, I don't know if you're like me, but I always thought that humility was a quality that it was for, for my benefit, like for my personal growth and, you know, for having a good character and having a good attitude. But I then realized that humility is not for the benefit of me. Humility is for the benefit of others. When I am walking in humility, the people around me are benefited. It's for their profit. Humility is the key to loving and treating others properly. It's the key to change how you see yourself and how you see others. Pride will break it, but humility will foster it. Humility will strengthen unity and peace. So the next word uh, moving on is gentleness. And uh, gentleness I see as our ability of, of, of self-control, right? I feel like we prove our gentleness when, when we are attacked, 
when something is bothering us, coming against us, and how you respond to that is your opportunity to show your gentleness or not. And the Bible has so much to say about gentleness. Just for fun, you should Google gentleness in the Bible. I love doing those kinds of things because then you see all these verses popping up about all the fruits of gentleness. And gentleness, one out of the many things, I'll tell you a couple. Gentleness restores people. Your gentleness can restore somebody else. In a conflict, your gentleness can drive away anger. Gentleness brings life to people around you. You know, these uh, Facebook social media quotes that pop on your feed, there's this one that keeps popping on mine, and I just, it's my favorite. It says, everyone is fighting a battle that you know nothing about, so treat them in gentleness because you don't want to be their last straw. You want to be their first sign of hope. Isn't that good? Um, and ultimately, gentleness is a character of Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. As we're following Jesus, we can see his, uh, his own example of gentleness and humility. Now, the next word is patience, and patience is also translated as long-suffering. You guys, long-suffering, uh, until today, 20 years later, still makes me laugh. I think it's a hilarious word because it's not appealing at all. You know what I want? To suffer. Not just suffer, to suffer long. I think long-suffering is a hilarious word, but I, I get it. It's the ability to suffer long, the ability to endure, the ability to bear uh, to not give up in your relationship. Th th that makes complete sense. But the word for long-suffering in Portuguese is longanimo, which actually means long encouragement. Doesn't that sound refreshing in your relationships for you to be encouraged long? You don't lose your encouragement, and especially in your long-term relationships, in your lifelong friendships, or in your marriage with your kids, with your parents, because with strangers, it's a lot easier to be, you know, gentle, patient, because you turn around and you go home. But with our relationships that are always there, maybe you're patient today, but then there's tomorrow, and then there's the day after tomorrow, and maybe you're able to love today, but you have to love again tomorrow. And then, and then that's when you experience the long suffering or the long encouragement and not losing the encouragement in your relationship. That sounds refreshing to me. I'm like, yes, Jesus, I need that. Another thing about patience is I love noticing when you're reading through the gospels, have you noticed how Jesus, he's always doing something, right? He's always going somewhere. He's headed to a mission. He's doing something. And then people would come and interrupt him. Jesus, Jesus, and stop him from his agenda, from what he was doing. And in his interruptions, he was patient. He was willing to be interrupted. He was willing for people to stop what he was going to do. And for me, you guys, this is where 
I lose my patience the most, the most often. Think about my kids. If I'm trying to get out of the house, that sometimes feel like a Olympic marathon because how many things can happen to stop you from stepping out of the house? And you lose your patience when people are getting on your way and interrupting what you're trying to do, turning your focus away out of that. But patience is not just your ability to wait until you finally get back to what you're trying to do. It's not just your ability to wait, but your attitude while you're waiting. It's your attitude while you're waiting. It's your response when people interrupt. And even in other things in in our lives, we have plenty of things that we pray for, that we long for, that we hope for, And we're in the season of waiting. We're waiting for those things to happen. And we prove our patience by our attitude while we're waiting. The next word is bearing in love. This word love is the agape love, which is the unselfish, unconditional, sacrificial love. And this love doesn't expect anything back. So we're invited to bear one another in love, but not just any love. It's this kind of sacrificial love. And, and again, I'll remind you, it's one, two, three, and then four. It's impossible for you to walk in such love you, if you have not experienced it yourself. You cannot give what you don't have. We have to experience this quality of love, which is God's. It's his kind of love, the sacrificial love that doesn't expect anything back. When we experience that in our lives, we can pass it on to others. We can't run on an empty tank. We have to be filled like a reservoir to be able to operate out of that. And this picture of reservoir has been in my uh, mind because a couple months ago, there is this horrible uh, accident in Brazil that a, a water dam, a reservoir, it ruptured. It was, you know, in a not safe condition and it exploded that water down. And the, as tragic as it was, the images of the destruction of that water going down, it was just unbelievable. The power of the water, it knocked down everything around, including like train tracks and bridges. You know, it's not like carrying over a car. No, it's massive things around. It just exploded out. And when I think of this quality of God's love, God's love is so extreme that if we're filled like a reservoir of water, like a reservoir of love, my prayer is that we can continue to explode that water, that explosion of love to others around us, like, that, like those scenes of the reservoir uh, rupturing. God's love is, we read a couple weeks ago, how wide And long and deep is the love of Christ. It's a love that surpasses knowledge. And Paul prays that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
And when we're filled with that fullness of his love, we can walk in such a way. So all these uh, characteristics in this verse, what do they have in common? Being humble, being gentle, being patient, and bearing in love. All of these words, they're not focused on self. It's all about others. And therefore, the title of this topic, Walk Others Centered. So when Paul invites us to live a life worthy of our calling, he doesn't say, so be wise, or so work hard, or do everything very in a very excellent way, or on and on. He says, you want to live a life worthy of your calling? Then realize that it's less about you, and it's all about others. It's less of me and more of others. Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. You want to honor others more then you want to serve your own feelings and interests. You want to value others more. That's our selfless lifestyle, the others-centered lifestyle. I love this quote from Pastor Warren Risby. He says that self-preservation is the first law of spiritual, uh, I'm sorry, is the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. The world is preaching self-preservation, but God is preaching self-sacrifice. Isn't it exactly what Jesus modeled? The rest of that Philippians 2 says, just, just, let, that, just let this soak in. Let this scripture, I will read it over you. Think about this. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Think about what Jesus did. Him being God, he gave up all of that because he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about you and me. He humbled himself to have parents, to have friends that knew nothing, to walk among us and he treated everyone with such love and patience. And, and the interesting thing is that the only group of people that Jesus was not patient at all were who? The Pharisees, the spiritual leaders. Why? Because they were so prideful. <laughs> that was the only group of people that Jesus wasn't patient at all with. God resists to the prideful, but he shows grace to the humble. Jesus was selfless and following him 
means living a life others-centered. So that was our first invitation. The second one, let's go back to Ephesians 4. The second invitation from Paul for us to live a life worthy of our calling. He calls us to walk in unity. That's our second invitation. And the next verse then says, uh, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Jesus' whole ministry was about unity, right? He came, what? To uh, reconcile God and humanity, to reconcile us with each other. This whole letter Paul is writing because of the Gentiles that were not the people of God, that, that were now brought in, into the Jews' uh, community and bringing, Jesus made that to bring that uh, unity among people. He reached out to the outcasts, to the blinds, the lepers, everybody that was left out. Jesus was, Jesus was always bring people together, uniting people and uniting us with God. Unity is the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. And now the interesting thing about this passage, it says, make every effort not to manufacture it, to build it, but what? To keep it. Jesus did it, and now we keep it. Don't break it. It's like having that vase in the living room, and just, it's there, just don't break it. He built it, we keep it, we treasure it, we take good care of it, we value this thing that Jesus created. Division and segregation is the opposite of God's heart. He wants us to be in peace and be united. Uh, so I was talking to a friend of mine. She, is, uh, she used to be a rowing athlete, you know, rowing the boat. Can you imagine the, can you picture in your mind the boat with several people? And, and it's a multiple people boat, but they're all in one boat. So I was talking to her and she was saying, Mariana, rowing, the core of rowing is unity. Um, the, everybody, I, I don't want to forget what she said because it was good. She said the oar, I didn't even know what that thing was called. The oar has to enter the water all at the same time, move through the water at the same speed and get off the water at the same time. Everybody has to be in perfect sync in order for it to go uh, successfully. It's an utterly team sport. All their decisions and their movement and their speed, it's never for their own benefit. It's always to the benefit of the whole. And, and I thought it was really interesting when she said, there is no star in rowing. You know how in soccer and football, there's the star of the team, the quarterback, the forward. There's always someone that shines brighter, that gets the, you know, more attention. There's no such thing in rowing. Not one individual gets a wow. The team gets a wow when they're perfectly united and moving completely in sync. That's when they get wowed. And if somebody is early or late in their movement, it causes the whole boat to slow down. And she said it's actually kind of dangerous because if you're not in complete sync, the oar can hit you and you can get seriously injured. 
think about that in your in how we experience unity in our relationships. If you're not in complete unity, the whole boat slows down and you can get deeply hurt. And in a single boat rowing, you're not relying on anybody else, but your body has to be in perfect sync. While in a multiple people uh, boat, the whole team has to move as one body. And when we read scriptures, you know, of do this, do that, Jesus is not asking us to row better. He's inviting us to row together. It's not about you getting stronger or faster. It's about us doing it together. And how do the rowers are able to do that at all? Because they have one person in front of the boat that is sitting facing them and telling them what to do. Speed up, slow down, and counting the pace. One, two, three. And if you are paying close attention to that leader, you're going to be perfectly united. Isn't that an incredible picture, an incredible visual of this life of unity that Jesus invites us into? As we're listening to Jesus and following him, as we're all attentive to his voice, we can continue to move in unity. I love when the Bible repeats itself. You know, if the Bible will tell you something, you listen. If it says it twice, you better listen because God was intentional to take his time and say it again. So in a whole other book in Philippians, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. In a whole other book, Paul brings up the word worthy and being worthy of the gospel and what follows that as we are together as one. I think the point was clearly made, Paul, thank you very much. If we want to live a life worthy of our calling, we need to work together, striving together as one, just like the rowing boat, moving as one single body. Now, this is this is great theory, okay? I understand this is, this is in the theory realm. What does it look like in, in the practical? Because for me, I'm all for being united. I want to be united. I, I'm a people pleaser. I want to make you happy. But why do I not feel so united with other people sometimes? It's when you get into those debates, some discussions, when people are not agreeing with each other, or if you have a friend or somebody in your family that is, has a completely different lifestyle, you feel like, oh my gosh, we have nothing to do with each other, and you feel disconnected, or you maybe uh, you feel prideful because you feel like, you know, you're doing so much better than them, or you feel shame because, you know, them telling the stories, you feel horrible about what you're doing. So all these differences, I feel like the differences, it makes it difficult for me to, to feel like I'm united. But here's something else that I heard. Organizations are formed around agreements. 
but families are formed around fatherhood. We don't experience unity because we agree in everything with everyone all the time. We experience oneness and unity because we have one father. We have different gifts, different personalities. We look differently. We have different tastes. There are things we don't like. But what unites us is that we are family. And we have to find peace, not in agreeing, but in journeying together in love. So uh, when our eyes are in our differences, we grow apart. But Paul goes on here to highlight then what we do have in common, what we do have in common. When I'm having conflict in any relationship, I'm like, oh, we're so different. It's so helpful for me. It's a very practical thing that I do to think, what do I have in common with this person? So that's what Paul's going to do now. Let's read the next verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you're called to one hope when you're called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. These are the elements that unite us. And there are three words, if you noticed, that are related to God. It says there's one spirit, the Holy Spirit. There's one Lord, Jesus. There's one Father, God, the creator, and then there are four words that are related to our salvation. We have one faith, one hope, and we uh, have one body. And we enter, enter this body through one baptism. There's no different baptism depending on your background. It's one baptism. And we form this unity, this body, this family together because of these elements. Now, you know what else is beautiful about this list of things? It was three plus four. That's seven ones in this scripture. The number seven is a number that repeatedly in the Bible is seen as uh, speaking of perfection, wholeness, completeness. Starting with creation, God created the world in seven days. He didn't move on to an eighth day. He rested on the seventh day. Why? Because he was tired or because he ran out of creativity? No, because it was complete. It was done. All the work was finished. And he said, and it was good. Now I'm going to sit and enjoy it. And throughout the Bible, we see seven representing this. We see seven when Joshua was uh, in Jericho. God told them to march around the city seven times. And on the seventh day, to go around seven times, representing the completeness of God conquering that place for them. In Revelation, Revelation is packed with sevens, which is the completion of all things. There are the seven churches, which shows the completeness of God's body. Now, don't try to start putting, you know, meaning behind every number. It's not that every number has a meaning beyond the number. Sometimes seven is just seven. But sometimes, if you're attentive, God may be trying to speak something else through the number seven, this idea of wholeness 
imperfection and completeness. And if seven means all of this, and in this passage that Paul is talking about oneness, he in a brilliant way presents seven elements that makes us whole, that makes us complete, that makes us one. We are one. When I read passages like this, be humble, be gentle, my mind goes to, okay, I have to stop doing this, I have to start doing that, I need to get better at that. But mysteriously and beautifully, God is always trying to take us back to the seven. It's finished. The work is finished. It's complete and it's whole. And now you enjoy it. We are called for good works, but it comes from this place of understanding that God has done it all. We flow together with him in enjoyment of this oneness that he has created between the Trinity and us and the body and our faith and our hope. We are one with him, in him. We're one, not just with each other. We're one with him. And if I want to live a life worthy of my calling, why do I want to live a life worthy of my calling? It's because I want to experience this, the fullness, the wholeness, the complete package that God has created. Because being whole in him being whole with each other is when we enjoy the fullness of his heart and of his vision for us. So the very end of our text says God is over all and through all and in all. He tells us what to do and now he tells us how to do it. He never said, do this, do that, good luck. He says, I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm moving through you. And that's uh, how it's all possible. That's how God will work through us and we can move through his power. And that's why and how, that's how we can be other-centered, understanding that he's moving in us and through us and he's over us is how we can be selfless, how we can be other-centered, how we can uh, walk in oneness, experience the unity of the body and live this life worthy of our calling. So let's pray together now. Holy Spirit, we have heard so much about your heart and what you have done for us. And now we present our hearts to you so you can reveal to us individually in what areas you're inviting us tonight, today, to walk in our faith, in what ways we are to put our faith in action. Would you just pray and present your hearts right now? 
in what areas, ask Jesus, in what areas can I embrace selflessness and be more other-centered? Maybe during this whole time, you've had a person in your heart or a particular relationship that you might be struggling with. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind every person in relationship that he wants to bring unity. Maybe just like with the rowing, you have been hurt by being out of sync. You or others have caused the whole relationship to slow down or cause injuries. Holy Spirit, would you heal relationships tonight? Restore oneness tonight. Father, we rely on the truth that you're over us. We rely on the truth that you're in us. We rely on the truth that you move through us. We so desperately need you. We want to be more like you, Jesus. We want to have a heart like yours. And we want to enjoy the wholeness, the fullness completeness of this unity that you have come to create and we want to keep every effort make every effort to keep it please continue to speak to us in clear ways father where else uh, you want us to embrace our faith and put it into action so we can live it out and allow it to transform who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.